Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Creating Structure podcast. I'm your host, John Wheaton. Thanks for listening. It's my pleasure today to have Dave Dunham, Director of Business Development, and Dearamid Kelleher, Director of Engineering with Centec. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Great to have you. Uh, well, we're going to jump right into it because um, there's three of us here. We're going we're gonna to geek out a little bit. But before we do that, um, Dave, tell us your background. And then, Dearamid, you can tell us your background and you know, where you're from. What do you do? Where'd you go to school, et cetera? All right. Yeah, I'm. Um, uh, my background is in in uh, project management and in civil engineering. So I, I have a degree in engineering physics from Westmont College, and then a degree in uh, a BS in in civil engineering structures track from University of Nevada Reno. Uh, I started in construction project management. I was a project engineer for a general contractor and and then joined Centec in a in a project manager role um, and then started doing engineering for them. Became engineering manager and and then into to um, the sales side. I, I was pre-sales engineering manager and now I I run the, the sales team for Centec. Okay, so. Dave. And is your formal title title director of business development? Yeah, director of business development. Um, I, you know, I run the the sales department for Centec, but as a, a specialty structural glass supply company, um, you know, we we don't depend on other people's engineering for for to be accurate for our bids. And you know, you change a little bit of glass thickness or or a little bit in structure, and that that translates into big dollar values in what we do. So we do. Um, we do full engineering of all of our bids. So, so we're doing preliminary engineering of every, every bid we send out. So it's a fairly engineering intensive exercise. And then part of my role is design assist. We do design assist on, on a huge percentage of our, our projects. So it's working with architects and design teams in developing efficient and, and um, uh, I, I'd say accurate solutions to, to the, the design intent they're looking for. Excellent. Thank you. I've got a few questions already. Dearmud, tell us your background, what you do at Centec, where you came from and all that. Yeah, for sure. Um, my background is as an engineer as well. I went to school uh, in, for structural engineering with architecture at University College Dublin back in Ireland, which is, which is where I'm from. And then also here in the States, uh, I have a civil engineering degree from the University of Minnesota. Uh, I have been in the facade industry my entire career so far since 2008 uh, on both the contractor and the consultant side. So I've had a good, good variety of, uh, of experience. Uh, started at Larson Engineering, um, doing in-house calculations for a um, variety of uh, suppliers and manufacturers of systems. Um, Permastalisa, we got to Permastalisa uh, as a structural engineer um, in-house doing uh, engineering on their systems. I then decided I'd like to try consulting. I, I guess I was seeing all the red lines that consultants were making on our submittals. I was like, that looks like, that looks like fun. I'll give that a go. Uh, so I <laughs> ended up at uh, Thornton Tomasetti in Chicago. Uh, I was there for about six years. Uh, moved on to a company called Inhabit, uh, set up their US office. Um, and then Alfonso reached out to me. Alfonso is our CEO. He was on the show before, um, reached out to me at the end of last year and wanted to know if I would like to join the, um, the team as director of engineering. And, you know, uh, over the course of my career, in particular at Thornton Tomasetti, I got exposed to, you know, a, a number of structural glass or specialty lightweight structure type projects, became very interested in them. Um, and so when Alfonso offered me a role, uh, at a firm where every project is a specialty structural glass or lightweight structure project. And to join that, join the firm at the director level, it was a no brainer. Um, and so I joined uh, Centec three months ago now. We just finished my first quarter at Centec. That's great, congratulations. And did you replace Dave in his previous role or was there a different progression there? Uh, yeah, there was a different progression is my understanding. I think yeah, okay. uh, ultimately, yes, but uh, <laughs> there was a few more uh, people who filled the role various times before I arrived. 
That's right. Yeah, yeah I was leaving the engineering group um, in 2014 is when I switched to things. Okay, so, yeah. yeah, so you've been, because I knew you've been at this for a while. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Um, Dave, uh, you worked for GC side before you got into the specialty side. What GCs did you work for? Anybody you can name? Um, yeah, I worked for Q&D Construction in, in Reno, Nevada is where okay. I was um, So I got... I actually had some overlap between finishing school and, and starting with their firm and then um, did did some, they did a lot of uh, specialty work, which included, I was assigned a project in, in Tahoe that had extensive structural glass. Uh, it was a private residence that, that they they used pretty much every system that Centec had. So I I'd worked with Centec before. Okay. Centec. That's how I kind of got connected with them. So. And where are you from? Did I miss that? Uh, I'm from Northern California. So, so I live in the in the foothills between Sacramento and Tahoe, and little town called Grass Valley. Great, thank you, Jeremy. I I was very intrigued by in your your tenure on the Kelleher farm. You grew up on a sixty <laughs> acre dairy farm in County Cork. You said, right? That's right. Yeah, uh, I did a very different life from designing structural glass. Um, yeah, but yes, I grew up in a sixty acre dairy farm and. I guess most of the audience is, is American here, but that would be considered a medium-sized family farm uh, in Ireland and certainly provided for all of us growing up. Yeah, good for you. You and I had a bit of a connection in advance because you're living in Berwyn, Illinois, and I was born there. And then That's I right. also spent four years on a 60-acre farm, although it was a hobby farm. We didn't depend on it to eat, but uh, my mom sure enjoyed raising cattle and gardening and the more animals the better for her at one time we had 40 head of cattle but they weren't dairy cattle we did you know steers and and uh grass fed in fact people said you know they say no is that grass-fed beef and i when i was a kid i think what other kind of beef is there i had a i had a very similar experience in my uh early days in the states back in 2006 i went to a restaurant and it said grass-fed beef and i turned to the person who i was with and i said as opposed to what <laughs> you know i mean what, what what are we feeding the the cattle in this country yeah i mean we threw grain in the trough you know after late afternoon but yeah so anyway i digress yep. so that's great um and i'm sure that was formative in learning how to work hard. Uh, so that's cool. Um, all right. So let's get into some further depth here. So Dave, you're in business development, you lead sales, but you come from the engineering background. You've been there just a short time, but you're leading engineering. Um, so Dave, talk about you say you, you have a high level of collaboration. You lead the sales team, but you do a lot of DA. Mm -hmm. So what does a lot of DA look like? What's the level of importance of that? And what's the collaboration look like between you and director of engineering in that mode? Yeah, yeah, good question. So so I get every every level from an architect who who doesn't know the difference between monolithic glass and IGU, you know, to, to someone that has a design consultant, they know exactly what they want, you know, so it, it, everywhere in between. So we're getting different levels of, of drawings and, and suggesting value engineering solutions on, on a lot of this, you know, uh, and, and really that those solutions come down to um, you know, project specific constraints of, of wind pressures and, and such like that. So, so pairing, a strong engineering, um, you know, group that I've got in sales with with uh, the knowledge of our systems and and current um, costs of of different materials because that's varying all the time. You know, the the efficiency levels change depending on system, right? You know, so how much aluminum costs versus how much glass fins cost versus no fin systems. You know, just going pure glass, um, all of that that changes, and and different systems have different um, you know, uh, um, I'd say tolerance for high pressures or, or things like that. You know, I mean, a clear span system where you're, you're not using any support and spanning large distances are very pressure dependent just because you did it across the street. Doesn't mean you can do it in, in your building, you know, if it's different heights or, or exposures or, you know, things of that nature. So it's, it's 
pairing our our um, you know preliminary calculations of all right the 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 glass has to be this thick and the the material spacing it, you know the the base structure is is this heavy if you're at this spacing more versus different at a different spacing you know trying to optimize those kind of efforts and then from there um, you know if it's a standard system then then Dearmid doesn't see it until we have a, a sale. That's kind of our, our thing. If, if there's something unique or we're looking for creative solutions, then man, we bounce it off of all kinds of engineers. You know, uh, our, our CEO, um, Alfonso is a very creative guy. He, he has great solutions. Dearman and I will bounce um, uh, options off each other. We've got several, you know, we've got a, a whole wealth of talent in the office, which is really nice to, to be able to lean on in those kind of situations where, hey, this is this is weird, you know, or, or something like that. We we get those kind of projects. Um, and and so if it's larger projects that have extensive design assist, you know, we're developing a lot of new details. Usually it's a, under a contract basis. Then that's where the overlap between Dearman and I becomes pretty extensive because we'll you know, I'll, I'll have a lot of history with it typically. And, and as we pass off to, to his team, um, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time going through what we've done so far, what still needs to be done and, and, um, and who's performing which calculations. So we, we try and stay pretty consistent with it. And so far we've, we've been pretty successful at that. So, so there's a, there's a varying degree of overlap then between you and Dermot, depending on the standard or custom aspect of the job. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Jeremy, what does that look like from your end? So Dave's, Dave's trying to make sure you're scoping and pricing correctly and using the right engineering assumptions, you're approaching it from the engineering side as well, looking the other direction. What does that collaboration look like for you when you're interacting with Dave on that front end? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, uh, the project gets handed over to, to the production team, uh, which I oversee uh, at, the, at the point of sale, once once we've secured the project, I and see. then it's on it's on me to um, ensure that it is you know uh, engineered uh, all the sort of atypical conditions, uh, verifying the engineering that 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 Dave had done, has done, which is always almost always right, um, and uh, getting it into shop drawings, fabrication drawings, and into uh, an installation set of drawings where we collaborate with our customer to help them understand the installation uh, process. Um, in terms of collaboration, we you know learn a lot and we make decisions about how we should you know maybe adjust our engineering. Um, as we go through any given project, it may come to us through a change in code or uh, an update into a design philosophy or repeated comments from a design team that we, we need to address. It's crucial for, for me to communicate those to, to Dave. Dave's doing all the initial engineering. He, you know, Doing that in a vacuum um, is a recipe for a disaster because when it comes to uh, the production side, if there's a, too big a disconnect, then we are not aligned with his budget and, and so forth. So um, sort of closing the loop, closing that feedback loop um, with Dave is, I think is, is incredibly important. And that's, that's certainly one major way in which we uh, collaborate. I see. Um, are there, Dave, do you find some job like, I don't wanna lead this. I don't wanna lead to an answer. I wanna ask a good question here. I'm wondering how, how long are you involved in projects as the business development sales guy with engineering background? Are there jobs where you're talking to Dearmid and it's and it's going to be deep into the process because you got to go back and check a scope item? And are there other times where, yeah, you've drawn a line here, you don't even have to look at it? Does it does it vary from a short to a long tail? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, pretty varied. In in general. Um, you know, I, I think one of the advantages that that Dermot has is when when we pass a project off, he knows what has, you know, at least in concept, what has happened. You know, he's been on the consulting side, he's been there in mm -hmm. that development, and that's that hasn't always been the case. With you know, everybody has every, different engineers have their different different strengths, and so so it's 
fairly quick for me to pass off. Hey, this is what we've designed. This is what we haven't, you know, and, and he, he follows that and, and moves forward in, in a lot of cases, um, you, you know, we've designed the primary items, but there's questions on, on maybe minor scope issues. And, and then it's, you know, I, I then become one of the engineers that's bouncing good ideas, not necessarily that it had to be me, but just, just that I've had plenty of experience in structural glass, you know? So, so that, that uh, length of time varies greatly, you know, on a simple project, it's, we have a, a two hour meeting and I never hear about it again, you know, and, and um, usually it's more complex than that in the, in the projects we're typically involved in. Okay. That's good to know. Um, little shift in direction here. So uh, I'm going to ask Tiramid first and then Dave. So Tiramid, um, I find people have interesting comments in regards to what attracted them to the industry. I know you, you told us where you started, you know, and you work for some very recognizable names, Larson and Perma and Thornton Tomasetti. But what, what attracted you as a structural engineer and as a human to the, to the delegated design specialties and not just specialty structures, but glass engineering. What, what's the why? What's the, what's the jazz behind that? I mean, when I first got into it, there was, there was no rhyme or, or reason. I didn't know what curtain wall, to use that term, was. I, I assumed it had to, something to do with fabric. You know, um, <laughs> when, I, uh, when I was looking for a job in, in, in 08, it was a tough market, and I was happy to accept a job offer that was, that was offered to me. Um, it happened to be in the facade industry, and I haven't looked back. Um, lucky, I guess, or maybe just my personality of sticking with something, maybe a bit of both. Um, what has attracted me back to the sort of delegated design specialty glass side of things? Um, it's a good question. I think being able to have a lot of control over the project is something that, that appeals to me. Um, I think uh, the nature of consulting um, as a facade consultant in particular, there, there are no um, facade sheets as part of a set of construction documents. There are the architectural sheets, there are the structural sheets, there are mechanical sheets. There's no facade sheets. We are mm -hmm. advising um, an owner or an architect and you have, you have a certain amount of influence. I think really talented good consultants have a lot of influence and they've learned their trade and their craft well to execute that influence. Um, that said, um, I'm a sort of a practically minded, hands-on type of person. So just being on the contractor side is inherently sort of where I, where I am most, most comfortable. Um, also my engineering, structural engineering in particular training and background, that's been the, my area of uh, specialty. Uh, I think all facade uh, engineers need to be good generalists, um, but mm. it's good to have an area of specialization as well. And that's been the structural application uh, for me. So I think no better system than structural glass mm. to execute that area of specialization. Wait, you mean that some of the forces still has to come out to zero at the end? Last time I checked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah. Right it hand doesn't rule. have to, but it's going to cause problems. Yeah, yeah right hand rule still apply. I remember Unless one time. I remember one time early on, one of my engineers. That was just probably twenty years ago. He had done a big. At that time, we were using a program called Strad, not Stad, and he came to me with a two hundred some page analysis, and um, I, I looked at the, the beam analysis, frame analysis, and I flipped to the back. It had a sum of the forces section, and I flipped to the back of it. And I looked at it and I said, it's wrong. And I handed it back. He goes, why? And I go, your forces don't sum out to zero. There's a, there's a difference there. There's something wrong here. So, yeah. You were going to say, unless what? Unless it's dynamic. Yeah, unless it's dynamic, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're not going to go there. You guys are a lot smarter than me about that. Well, maybe most, we'll of the time, most of the time we're dealing with um, macro, doubly symmetric elements that are static. Structural engineering is fairly fairly basic when you think about it that way. 
Yeah, but as soon as you get into single degree or double degree of freedom with different boundary conditions, it's a whole different game, isn't it? Sure is. So, so Dave, what about you? What I mean, you've been at this a while, and I've talked to a number of folks that went from general contractor, were attracted to this side, but is there anything in particular beyond just the familiarity now that really has drawn you into the facade glass, specialty glass side of the work? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I, I think um, at first it was just something I knew and could get a good job in. You know what I mean? Uh, in in 2010 is when I joined Centec and and jobs were few and far between mm-hmm. um, in in any kind of construction. Um, and then you know project management, doing that kind of work, it almost doesn't matter what type project management is project management, you know, you're managing people, you're managing supplies, different things like that. So, um, but I think what's kept me in the industry is I, I love the diversity of, of structural dust. We have standard systems, but holy cow, every system is applied differently to every project there. There's just no two that are exactly the same. And so the creativity involved, um, in, in, um, design, but then you know, well, I, I think we'll talk about codes probably in this. But but since uh, since structural glass doesn't have its own you know nationally recognized code, that it really comes down to what's right. You know, we're we're actually doing engineering because you're you're making engineering judgments on how safe and safety factors and what should be done on these systems, as opposed to I feel like. Most structural engineers, hopefully I don't offend anybody, most structural engineers, it's more like finding loopholes and codes is what you're doing to, to be a good structural engineer. You're, 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 you're pushing code limits, you're not pushing material limits, you know? Um, and mm. and I, I like that it's, I feel like it's true engineering when we're taking these materials and doing physical testing when we don't have good data or, or you know, doing whatever's required to have a safe, um, consistent result engineering wise and, and applying that to, to what we're producing. Yeah. I like that. That's a great statement. Um, I feel like in, in structural glass and specialty curtain wall work, we're, we're not only pushing code limits, but we are pushing material limits and some of which has never been defined before. Right. (laughs) Right. That's really good. Thank you for that. Let's talk a bit about well, for that quick question, is Syntec only doing vertically or horizontally glazed um, cladding that is that is an air and water barrier? Or are you also doing things like stairs and specialty railings and interior walls? Yeah, we we do do the the interior and stair work. You know, especially when you know the stairs made out of glass you know who, who better to, to do yeah. that when the glass is your structural element i mean not just treads and landings but even stringers out of glass and and things of that nature so yeah we we do get involved in that and and um there's even been unique projects where there's we've been involved because of the glass but have aluminum elements in it that that takes the kind of engineering I guess, horsepower that we have or, or design horsepower, you know, automated drawing sets. We've done some complex, you know, organic geometry projects that, that the glass is kind of a minor element to it. It was more the engineering and the, the, the geometry aspect that really got us involved in, and made us add value to the project. Yeah. Thanks for that. I, well, let just a quick history to speak to that, you know, let's talk about Alfonso for a minute. Um, I first met him in Conroe, Texas at Conservatech Industries. Okay. He worked for Don Brown at Conservatech. Don uh, is a Buckeye from Mansfield, Ohio, um, about an hour from my office here. And so that was quite an interesting place to go to. They weren't doing much about glass, but they were doing a lot of domes and specialty structures and yeah. He's a really smart guy. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, that was so I can understand you guys probably not a lot that you haven't seen as a team, as a group in specialty structure. So let's talk about um, glass engineering and specialty facade and as architecture and 
aesthetics. So we, you guys mentioned that structural glass is not a highly codified material. Um, and I think you're dealing what we would, with what we would call high performance systems. So this is a bit of a broad question, but what does high performance mean? Um, and what type of approaches do you take to a not highly codified material? Dearmood, I want to start with you, um, with your background and relative newness to Centec, but um, are you working on high performance systems? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, we, we are. And it, it means um, it means pushing the limits, I think, on um, in the first instance on, on transparency. That's what gets us to the large um, sizes that the industry has uh, sort of embraced and almost expects at this point in certain glass applications is very highly transparent, very large facade systems. Inherent in that is, you know, when you push that size, you're pushing the structural limitations of the system. You have systems that are working very, very hard to control the, the ultimate limit state and the surface, serviceability limit state. Um, you know, we manage that through, um, you know, creative use of structural principles like end uh, fixity to manage, you know, member sizes and, and material costs. Um, High performance, that's just the structural side of things. High performance um, also means high thermal performance. There is a, a, a greater trend towards um, more, more stringent energy, energy codes and um, thermally improved facade systems, which are a little bit opposite the, the, the trend of transparency. But you have to, you know, it's a balancing act. You have to balance both of those, uh, balance both of those things. Um, high performance also, I think, means high, you know, optical quality. Um, they're, you know, with the increasing sizes of glass, they're not, no one's, no one's uh, giving us a pass on optical quality. They, we still want um, incredibly, you know, flat, uh, undistorted glass. So um, that is also sort of a high performance metric that we, that we have to hit. Those just broadly are sort of the categories that, I see as, as high performance in the systems that I'm designing. Um, are you still are you still having to design a 12 pound and 50 pound water um, infiltration on your systems? It's less of a concern. Um, our system is nature of a of a structural glass, very minimal system used in a in a lobby, often underneath a canopy. Is that we, okay. we tend to be towards like the barrier system end of the spectrum. Okay. Uh, that said, yes, there are ways for us to incorporate um, multiple lines of drainage, in which case we would be meeting that level of, of air and water infiltration. So how how big is big? Are, are, you, are you doing just laminated glass or are you doing IGUs as well? IGUs as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how big, big is big, big like is an interesting question. We were notified by one of our suppliers that they can produce up to 75 feet now, um, 75 foot single pieces of glass, 12 75 feet foot long, 75 feet long, 12 feet wide. Um, and that's, that can be an insulated piece as well. So, wow. And are you getting, are you getting that domestically or internationally? No, that's international. I yeah. figured. Yeah. 75 by 12. Can you, can you get a piece of laminated glass 75 by 12? Yeah, yeah, laminated and tempered. Wow. I yeah. think insulated, laminated, tempered, coated. I think there's that is yeah, kind of what we're doing with that size. Yeah. And you know, wow. it's interesting because most of the the controlling aspects at that kind of size is not in the fabrication anymore. It's in the shipping. <laughs> you know, like how do you how do you yeah. even get that here? And and that's where the premiums come in more so than the fabrication. You know what? Um, that's a really insightful comment because these um, we did an all glass uh, facade on the Little Caesars World Headquarters building, pizza shaped glass, and 
you know, first of all, it had to be annealed and the optical quality was very high, but wait, the shipping, I won't get into the specifics of that, but um, as Phil at Eckersley and O'Callaghan said, you know, we're, we're, we're like, we've got to be concerned about every piece of every aspect of engineering, including the containering, shipping, trans, like unpacking, handling, you're, you're, you're building a watch, you know, it's a highly fragile material, right? You can't ding up the edge and scratch it. That's a really great comment. I wouldn't have thought of that right off the bat, a 75 foot by 12 foot piece of glass. You got to get it in a container. You got to get it on a ship. Mm -hmm. You got to get it safely here. That's something. I, I joke, like, you know, there's these terms for glass, like regular size glass and then large lights and then jumbo lights. And then somebody was saying between 75 square foot and 120, like it's bigger than jumbo. So I was like, well, what do we call it? Like super duper jumbo. <laughs> what do you yep. call 75 by 12? Like that's yeah. like Hulk glass or something. I don't, what do you call that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Big. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Okay. Anyway, I digress. So do you remember you, you mentioned thermal? So high performance too. You mentioned thermal performance, optical quality, structural limitations. Not so much on the water infiltration side, but just kind of pushing the limits and boundaries. Um, Dave, you mentioned earlier that um, in, in our pre meeting that glass is not a highly codified material. Where do you find the basis for the engineering? How do you go about that? What what boundaries and constraints do you put around? Mm -hmm the engineering of glass? Well, I mean, it, it's not a complete vacuum, right? Uh, ASTM E1300 has has stress limits, for instance, you know, probabilities of breakage and, and things mm -hmm. of that nature. So, so that's a starting point of taking what, what does apply from, from codes and applying that in, in other ways, you know, uh, and, and, is it is it justified of an of a face you know stress generated maximum does that apply to an edge you know well glass is pretty monolithic and and yeah we've proven that out in in um you know through testing so it, it's a matter of all right we we think we have this theory let's test it right that's science for you you know of 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 we when we we've had unique support conditions um, we'll include testing in our in our bid. You know, I I, I want to make sure this works before we commit to building. You know, three thousand of these, uh, and and so we'll we'll do either third party testing or testing in our own shop for for our our own um, peace of mind, right? So so we we do do that, but you know the the I think Dermid touched on this, but part of the high performance nature of, of all this is is the the design side engineering side of of um you know we want to be uh you know our our company supplies the material and does the design so so more so than just engineering hours we're talking about material dollars is is most of our bid so I want to push the limit of that glass thickness right to as thin as I possibly can make it, right? And so we're we're pushing those limits. Some of the some of the perimeter conditions, okay, maybe that's less important for the bid, but everything has dollars associated with it. So we're we're pushing limits in in every area, and 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 that's you know going back to Dearman and I coordinating. You know I, I'm pushing as many limits as I can to win work, but if we lose money because I pushed it too far, that's that's not good, right? So, so Dermid's given me feedback on no, we, we don't want to push that limit. We are okay pushing this limit, you know, or or whatever that that means. Um, so, so I yeah. So there's you've got certain areas of material optimization you've got to work. Are you, so Centec, and again, my guests are Dermid Kelleher and Dave Dunham with Centec, um, and and Centec is a specialty provider of architectural systems, primarily glass, right? Glass systems. Yeah. Um, and well, different, different track. I, I got to go a different direction. Well, are you guys providing labor as well for installation or just the design engineer supply? Just the design engineer supply. We, we, our clients are the glazers. We, we, all of our contracts go through a glazer. And, and so we partner with, 
with different glazers okay. around around the nation for installation. Um, do you guys provide any continuity then in the field on assistance? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah we, we do. Mm -hmm. We develop one of our final milestones uh, on our project. Um, you know, we, we think of, you know, first submittal, second submittal, uh, record set. Um, we will do what's called an installation set, which is um, sort of post-record sets where we have, um, we have completed our entire um, fabrication exercise. Uh, we 3D model everything from a fabrication standpoint. Uh, that's the norm, I think, in any high-performance um, outfit these days is to 3D model literally every single component wow. um, that's then that's done first and that's used to inform the 2d fabrication drawings that are used for procurement often that process leads to things that we want to tweak slightly they're usually fairly minor but there's details that we will modify as we're developing that 3d model it's some it's probably the first time we're seeing some of the conditions in full three dimensions um, that gets uh, incorporated into this installation set set i speak of we will write a full installation procedure. Um, we have a meeting with our customer to walk them through. Um, here's how we think you should install this. Here's what we recommend. Here are some of our requirements. We solicit their feedback and they always have feedback. They are lifting massive pieces of glass into the air, um, very expensive pieces of glass into the air. So they are they have a vested interest, inherent vested interest in, in getting this right. So they will provide us feedback, we'll, we'll incorporate, we will go to site and meet with them um, uh, to troubleshoot any, any issues. Um, but yeah, we, we do sort of main, maintain communication uh, with our customer all the way through until the project is done. That's a great point. Are you actually working with the glazing sub to design you know, how many glass cups do we need on this? And what does that rig look like? I mean, do you get to that level? To, to an extent, we'll, you know, we'll help them um, certainly with the weights that they are dealing with. We'll clarify those for them. Um, how, you know, what side they can pick the glass up on out of the crates uh, can sometimes be important. Um, in terms of the number of cups, I think they, they will sort of pick their equipment based on the weight, weight of the system. Um, so we don't want to, um be overly prescriptive you know th these guys um are setting the glass day in and day out they are the experts in that but we do yeah. give them as much of a helping hand as we can okay and we we've even got you know dedicated people for assistance with installation you know we've got our construction executive that that will go out and and be there on site at key milestones of the project when first piece of glass is set when you know you name it whatever's unique and I'd, I'd add if there's unique panels, you know, if you've got uh, a glass fin that's 12 inches deep and 25 feet long, yeah, it's got to have some specialty cup arrangements. Your, your four by four <laughs> cup doesn't, doesn't work anymore. It doesn't fit on there, right? So right. adapting spreader bars and things like that will help with fairly frequently. Okay. I want to get back to thermal, but I'm kind of dying to ask this question uh, to Dave, at least to start with. Um, are you guys working with the architectural community to help inform them? Um, because I know even after all these years, a lot of performance specs leave much to be desired and there's a lot of inconsistencies there. No offense to the architectural community, but there's just a lot to keep track of as an architect between MEP and architecture and structure and all that. Are you doing anything with the architecture community to help inform them? Absolutely. We're doing AIA lunch and learn presentations um, at least weekly. Uh, during COVID, we, we wow. peaked at, uh, I think we, we, in the year, we did like 130 something AIA presentations because um, no one could go in, in offices. We've, we've toned back a little bit because we like the face-to-face. -face. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we're, we're given presentations frequently. Um, we, 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 target specific firms that are that are doing um, structural glass in particular, because really when you, we feel like we're cutting edge of the industry, we're, we're pushing limits in, in every direction. So if the architect doesn't know where that limit is, he's not gonna design to that limit, you know? So, so we're, we're working with them to show the community what's, what's possible. So that's probably close to 50% of my time is, is with architects um, either 
doing general training on what's possible or, uh, you know, project specific design. I would guess when you plant a seed that you now have the ability to create a 75 foot by 12 foot light of glass that that gives an architect a lot of ideas. <laughs> yeah. Most have never dreamed of a piece of glass that big, you know? <laughs> so Yeah. Dear Mid, were you going to say something? I'm just going to add that design assist goes a, goes a, a huge uh, long way into um, helping uh, educate um, the architectural community into items like, you know, spec language, design limits. Um, and we, we embrace, you know, a design assist uh, role on, on any project for that reason. Do, do you guys ever bring architects into your facility and show them what you can do? Absolutely. Yeah. We do. Uh, <laughs> Anyone who's listening, just give us a call. And, uh, Austin, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, Austin is warm this time of year, uh, especially to an Irishman, but uh, it's a nice town. Come, come on down. Yeah, I, I don't think we do very often, though. The, a lot of glazers will come by our office. But I see. architects, you know, if they want to see big pieces of glass, you don't come to our shop. We're doing the metal work in our shop, right? The, you go to the glass fabricator. And you're, that that's part. getting shipped straight from the glass fabricator, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't want to try and pick those up in our shop for no reason, you know. Right. <laughs> um, but we, we have done walking tours of, of projects like downtown DC or, or in Austin, you know, where a lot of uh, our, our projects are installed, we'll meet at places like that and, and, you know, hit three or four projects within a three or four block radius. That's a great concentration, right? We'll, we'll do things like that with, with um, CSI groups or, or, you know, like uh, you know, different um, uh, AIA um, activities, things like that. So. Yeah, that's good. Um... Maybe it was a bit. How long have you guys been in Austin? How long has the, the has the facility has that been from the start? Yeah, from the start. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, two thousand six. Okay. Yeah, that and I guess that was good timing because Austin has exploded with tech and and yeah. growth and such. So, um, you know, Andrew Herring and others with National Glass would call us glass nerds in Austin just needs a few more nerds anyway, right? Get it, just keep it as weird as possible. There you go. <laughs> um, you know, talk about thermal performance because glass has a, you know, a bad reputation, right? In thermal performance in some ways and the technology has improved greatly, but you know, the U values aren't too substantial. So you mentioned thermal performance, um, how can we optimize thermal performance with your systems with you know, glass with high quality glass and embodied carbon and just the whole emphasis on that. What's going on there? Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. People think glass, especially structural glass walls that are incredibly transparent and they don't think high thermal performance. And I would say it depends on how you, how you design it and, and what you're looking to do and what you need to achieve. Um, you know, taking the size, for a start, the 12 foot wide, uh, 75 foot tall, uh, theoretical piece of glass, let's say it's insulated. Edge of glass is still only two and a half inches wide in your uh, area weighted U value calculation. So you have mm -hmm. you are pretty much getting the, the most contribution to the lowest U value, that center of glass U value as you can, the bigger mm -hmm. the piece of glass you have. Mm -hmm. You couple that with a free spanning glass system or vetra span system where you do not have a, a backup mullion. You're relying on the glass alone. Glass is a little thicker, a little bit more mass there to resist your value, and you don't have a, a penalty, so to speak, from, from the frame. Couple that with low E coatings, um, triple silver, high performance, low E coatings, inert gases like argon, warm edge spacers. You are really getting, you're really maximizing um, the thermal performance of a piece of glass are, are minimizing the U value of a, of a piece of glass. I think people don't, don't think of it that way. I think they think of a structural glass lobby wall as monolithic or laminated at best, which is certainly how it used to be. But we have some uh, projects in California that are complying with Title 24 requirements mm -hmm. that are massive, you know, really tall, 25 foot plus tall pieces of glass. Wow. Well, how far how far down can you drive the U value? Uh, certainly into the 
points to something range i would say as okay. um total totally range. achievable yeah I, I mean if you go to the low twos or into the point ones you're talking about probably a triple glazing unit yeah two air and spaces. two air spaces and to go much further than that you're talking for you're trying to match like the performance of a traditional building 30% winner to wall ratio, 40% winner to wall ratio. You're talking, yeah. you know, fully with full glass, you're talking double skin. Yeah. Totally, totally different animal. Totally um, different. Yeah. Right. You know, um, it's a good point. What you said, because when you do those, you value calculations, you've got the edge and you don't have any contribution from the mullion. Now you're just, you know, just the spacer. Just um, spacer. So like, yep. like you said, you're, you're optimizing, are you using warm edge spacer other than stainless steel? Are you using ther thermoplastic type um, or, or protected edges? Or can you not talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think we've done several different types. You know, there, there's several warm edge spacers that we've done, but uh, but each vendor that we use has yeah. their own preference. Yeah, so, that's right. So, uh, it kind of depends on where we're buying it. We, we try not to stick with just one. You know, I want to use what's best for each project, which changes, you know. So. Understood. And, and ultimately what's necessary for, for, yeah. for each project. If we're, if we're trying to hit a 0.3, you know, we don't need anything. You know, we could probably achieve that with an aluminum spacer. Sure. So there's, there's a balance of economy with the performance requirements. Gotcha. Dave, anything to add about that whole topic? Um, I, you mentioned right at the end that the double skin facade. You know, I, I think we're seeing more of those, and it's it's pretty awesome the level of performance you can achieve with a conditioned airspace, whether that's you know naturally ventilated or mechanically ventilated. Um, seeing those kinds of facades where you're you're achieving pretty excellent overall U U value R value, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and then have the visible light transmittance of the, of the system, uh, where you you just feel like you're outside. It's, it's fully open and expansive, um, getting to visit one of those, you really see it. There's a, there's a, um, public library in, in Manhattan beach, California. So Southern California, um, public library with a double skin facade wrapping the full perimeter. And you sit up at the, the top floor of this library overlooking the Pacific Ocean, you wow. know, just awesome views of, of over the over the city there um, with a full structural glass facade, you know, uh, that's more than three sides of the entire building, you know, so. Well, well, and I know that's one of my favorite destinations when I land at LAX. If I have to meet a client in the afternoon, I'll drive to Manhattan Beach to get lunch there and be able to there sit on the hill and look down at the water. What a beautiful spot. So yeah, you're trapping air, right? You've, you've got a huge airspace on the double skin facade. So not only are you using the high performance glass, but you're, you're trapping air, like you say, whether it's natural or whether it's conditioned in there. So you've got a lot more control with that airspace, right? Over the type of thermal performance you can manage. Is that a true yeah. statement? you're kind of creating a cushion of, of either warm or cool air between yeah. the interior of the building and the exterior. So if it's, it's um, winter time, you want a warm air, you know, cushion in between there. So you can, you can either pump warm air in there or, or use Lamy exterior panels where it creates kind of a greenhouse inside there. It, it has its own solar heat gain advantage at that yeah. point. You know? Yeah, that's good. Okay. So we've talked about thermal. If I come to Sentec, um, am I getting like in, a, in addition to the, the products that you're shipping it, are you guys providing to your customer the, in addition to the shop drawings, are you doing the structural calculations and you're stamping those and it's yeah. the whole package is that in thermal calcs, the whole thing, the, the, the whole thing. Yeah. We, um, fully, um, signed and sealed shop drawings that are that are that's done in house. We are, I think we're licensed in, in most all states. Dave, you can correct me if, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, uh, licensed PEs and SEs in in house, uh, doing all our calculations in house, and we have the ability to do thermal analysis in house as well. We have people who are who are experienced with with um, therm and window and, and can do those calculations. 
Okay. I never asked that question. I'm not saying that as a plug. I just didn't know. That's really good to know. Uh, so it's the full package. Um, let's see if we can get into the discussion of some of the challenges um, as we're getting later into our discussion. Um, we want to talk about some industry trends, but kind of impacts are you predicting on the supply chain? Kind of impact are you predicting on the cost of materials and the cost of glass escalation in general? Dave? Yeah, uh, it's been it's been interesting. My my first impression was, man, everything is just going up. Um, and my second impression is that it's going up in most places, not everywhere. So in some ways, the biggest impact to us has been shifting vendors, you know, just because it, it's going up in North America doesn't mean it is in Europe or Asia, you know. So so a lot of that is is, you know, it's a it's a fine line because some people aren't comfortable with that and there's there's its own issues with with going overseas with some of the work uh, with some of the the fabrication or or materials but uh but what's really hard is is you know people expect fixed price contracts and and general contractors are expecting that from the glazer and the glazer is expecting that, that to us but how does that work when the glass fabricator is is a huge percentage of our bid and they won't guarantee it for a week? You know, like I, I, that doesn't that doesn't jive. So so you're getting you're getting a conflict right now in in the world we're living in, and and I hope that that doesn't last. It I hope it stabilizes soon, but I can't predict the predict the future, and and so nobody really can. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it has to have an impact on what you know what you think and how you approach solutions and suppliers and such and we're all familiar with i don't it's probably not been discussed on a podcast yet because it's happened so quickly but you know guardian and vitro and then others have followed suit raising prices as much as 40% on flat glass which is mm-hmm. huge that goes to the fabricator now they have to put it together and i know viracon just issued a very eloquent statement from Garrett Henson about you know, what they would honor on existing quotes and if they had received or not an LOI and then, um, you know, how they were going to, I think they were talking eight to 12% increases on things downstream, but kudos, hats off to Garrett and and Cameron and that whole team there. They're an excellent organization, especially on how they approach the sale and, and try to treat their customers well. But yeah, it's just a problem. I, you know, labor seems to still be a problem. Inflation now is rearing its ugly head. So, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's tough. It's a dynamic. It's very dynamic. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about some directions or trends. Um, on the early design side, you guys were mentioning that you kind of from a holistic point of view, correct me if I'm wrong, you tend to see a lack of definition or variation to building movement issues. Lack of definition, lack of clarity, what kind of impact should an architect or engineer of record or a design professional, what kind of impact should they know that has on the delegated design side? Yeah, it... it, um it completely changes the perimeter detailing uh, is what I'd say. And sometimes even, even beyond that uh, in, in some cases, I, I, uh, we, we can take guess, guesses. We can, we can, we can at, at a bid stage have, have assumptions. All right, this is in California. It's probably going to move a lot, but what about Washington? You know, sometimes it moves a lot. Sometimes it doesn't, it's not as high, but still fairly seismically active or, or, you know, things of that nature. So, so the, the head detailing of whether our system is going to essentially the glass is going to act as a diaphragm, whether you want it to or not, you know, Mm -hmm. it's going to be rigid in plane. And so do you have the joints between to let it move with the building or, or do you not? And, and you have to have slide bracketry at the perimeter conditions and, and things of that. So there's fairly substantial, impacts to the the basic design approach 
that are completely based on building drift um, um, volumes. And, and so what we see in early design is, is one of two things, either no information or code maximum information. <laughs> and both of those are, are not, um, they're both tough to deal with because it's at the ground floor, a lot of times we're not seeing code maximums on those. You know, if, if they actually took the time to to model the building and, and see what real deformations are, we can get a lot more efficient with joint sizes and, and complexity of perimeter conditions. Um, so so that, that can get tough, not to mention renovations or, or things where they don't even have the data on that, that gets even tougher, <laughs> so. Yeah, that's good. So, um, you see, yeah, it either isn't defined or they just list what the code maximum is, but they haven't really done the definition. So you don't really, you're not really dealing with. Um, Fortunately, we we have ability to, to to manage it. We've 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 recognized this as a as a challenge and as an issue that needs that we needed to to respond to, and through very creative detailing from from Dave and, and from Alfonso. Um, We've come up with some pretty pretty nice solutions where we maintain um, big glass sizes, which are very sensitive to movement, as you as you can imagine, basic geometry. Um, uh, you know, not very big joint standard joint sizes, and being able to accommodate you know, several several inches of uh, of movement. We had a building in uh, California at the moment, wood framed building, mass timber building nature of the material it it deforms a lot the inner the inelastic inner story drift is nine and a half inches. wow nine and, and a half inches yeah, nine and a half inches and we have a 30 some foot tall wall uh it's, it's broken up we have you know there's three rows of panels i think and through some pretty creative detailing um we for all intent if it doesn't look like anything different than you than any other system from the exterior standard joint widths you know, nothing obtrusive, nothing um, that an architect would find objectionable. Dermot, are you accommodating like the joints at the head? Are you accommodating those with silicone or are you using bellows gaskets or like combinations of things? What are you doing? It's a, it's a combination. Uh, there's some sealant joints uh, movements and we have to, you know, uh, pick our products carefully that'll, that, you know, allow for, you know, 100% elongation at times, um, but also slip flashing and bellows. And, and, and that type of stuff is, you know, it starts at the perimeter of our system, classic, classic scope gap, not gap, but you know, there's, um, there's, we own our system, there's an adjacent system, we certainly want to show it correctly. Um, and we rely heavily on a, on a, you know, a really competent design team and consultant team in that instance to inform those interface details, which are really you know the the that's where the that's where the problems will be yeah, during the, the life of a building. You know at the perimeter. Yeah. I, I think it's important to to distinguish though. Um, we, one of the first questions we ask is it's not what what the building drift is; it's what the elastic drift is versus yeah. the elastic. You know, and yeah, so the right. waterproofing details are only have to be accommodate the elastic, the elastic drift. Right. That's, that's no building damage. Right. Uh, things that, uh, at that kind of level. So it's it's more manageable. And, you know, Dearman mentioned the perimeter conditions and the detailing. If we can get efficient details that work for all conditions, that's great, you know, and, and we minimize that, that cost difference where, where it's, um, it's not like tripling project costs to, to change, you know, building frames, you know, <laughs> so, so, so it, that does help a lot uh, in, in detail in these, but it's a lot of slide connections, you know, Teflon coated slip, slip attachments um, that, that can handle, you know, uh, we've seen, we've seen projects with 14 inches of drift in, in our height, you know, that we've got to accommodate differential between the top of our wall and the, the structure that it's attached to. I love it. That's and there's a great com uh, great point that you know you only have to design that seal to work functionally for elastic, and and we haven't even talked about live load. We've been talking about lateral. We won't get into that now. It's too late. But you know you got to accommodate up down movement. You got to accommodate side to side movement. Um, Dearman, I'm dying to ask you: Have you run into any conflicts or any struggles with the consulting community or the code community 
in regards to the Delta fallout issue and how your how is your glass going to perform in regards to this vague seismic provision? You run it's into come any up, of that? It's it's come up uh, now at at Centec in the short time I've been here, and it's come up in 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 previous lives as well. Of you know. Um, not necessarily needing to to design that D clear dimension uh, in a sort of a traditional fashion and taking more of a allowing the, the system to slip and accommodating that movement within the system approach. And it, it, I think it depends on the level of understanding of the code and the level of, of, of what the code is trying to achieve in terms of how successful uh, those conversations go. Um, you know, we are on a project right now. We are going to be doing a Delta fallout test uh, really? for the first time. Um, and I think, you know, like a lot of um, like a lot of projects, we have a lot we have a lot of input and we want to make sure that, you know, we are sort of blazing some trails to an extent with this new new detailing and we want to make sure it is correct. Um, wow. So I think there is benefit to testing in that fashion. Wow, that is exciting uh, to hear that you're going to do a Delta fallout test. Um, okay, I'm going to leave it there. I have one more technical question, and then we'll get off the geek subject. And as we look to wrap up here shortly, um, believe it or not, we're at an hour, maybe slightly more. Um, has bird-friendly glass had any impact on the design and specification of your systems? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, there, there's two main approaches we deal with. If you want to just put a, a dot pattern on on the glass, then you're you're talking a balance of of um, transparency versus adding adding opaque area to your your glass. So it's more of an aesthetic uh, thing that, but but most fabricators can produce that that dot pattern or line pattern, whichever they want to do. On, on almost any jumbo size panels. Uh, if you're talking this low E coded, you know, supposedly only visible in the UV spectrum type of, of protection, um, they have size limitations. And, and most of our, our um, systems are using pretty large panels of glass that we're bumping into those maximums. Um, that or it's not available in the US. You know, you've got, you've got guys promoting systems that that are only available in Europe or, or something like that, or, or you have to buy a, a full container load of this stuff to, to make it um, to the, in, in the U S and that, that supply wise gets extremely um, difficult to, to manage, but yeah, we're seeing it all over. It's, it's become a big, um, uh, a big topic of discussion for a lot of the design assists we're working with how to, how to efficiently do that. And it's and it's here to stay, right? I mean, there it is becoming an ordinance in certain jurisdictions that that a certain height of your building, and it's usually the lower floors that they deem to be the most, uh, which was a surprise to me, uh, that they need to be most sort of sensitive to bird strikes. Um, you're seeing ordinances. There's one in Chicago, right? Um, or it's at least on the books. Um, there are there are there's one on the books for New York, I believe. Um, so it, it's um, there are architects who ordinance or not, or code provision or not, as a stance, as a sustainable stance, we are going to include bird freight on bird sensitive areas. Um, so we, you know, embrace that and um, have, you know, the, the technology to, to respond to it. That's good. Good for the bird. You know what the, you know what the next, you guys probably know, you know what the next biggest killer of birds is worldwide? Oh, I don't. <laughs> Cats. I was gonna say, <laughs> my my dog is up there for sure. But yeah, no, no lie, it's it's cats. Like wow. another fun fact to know, the number one, the number one uh, increase in farm animal deaths um, when uh, people start to move out of the city is uh, animals being let loose, like domestic animals, like dogs being let loose in the country in. They go after cows and sheep and you, you wouldn't think that, but that's a big, big cost. Anyway. Yeah. So it's like glass and cats. We can't do anything about the cats. 
but I'm glad I, I, I was really interested in that because it certainly impacts the visibility of the glass, but it benefits the bird community and the fact that you're seeing a lot more of it. That, that's what I thought the trend was. So we're going to, we're going to wrap up here. Let's um, hopefully the audience has followed us enough um, to know what in the world we're talking about. I know there's a lot of smart people out there listening. And for those who are more lay people, um, you certainly can talk to one of these gentlemen. Their contact information will be in the show notes and you can connect with them both on LinkedIn and, and through their website, I'm sure. But as, as human beings, outside of being professionals, um, Dave, first, what do, you, what do you like to do to recreate Anything you do for a hobby or recreation? How do you relax after work or on a weekend? Well, John, I, I have six kids. And so oh. um, I play with the kids. And that that varies from riding motorcycles in the in the in the woods to hanging out at the river. Um, we we take trips out to the desert sometimes in Nevada. Uh we like camping. We're kind of an outdoors family. So um, one of them will have something for me to do every day after work. So <laughs> that's what that'll, I'm doing. that'll pull you out of your, uh, that'll pull you out of the work brain pretty quick, won't it? Absolutely. <laughs> Good for you. That's a great size family. Dear mid, what about you? What do you like to do to recreate? What do you do to relax? Well, I have a, as I mentioned, I have a, I have a dog that I try to keep away from the birds. Uh, so <laughs> I try to spend time with him and, 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 and take him on walks and such. Um, like, uh, Dave, uh, sort of, a when I'm not at my desk, I'd, I'd rather be outdoors. So whether it's just, uh, you know, weekends or evenings or, or my vacations are usually some combination of, of hiking or camping or climbing or canoeing or cycling or um, getting around under my own steam, I suppose, is generally how I, how I put it. Um, try, try, try to stay active and, and, and counteract the eight plus hours of sitting every day. Yeah. Amen to that. I feel that. Well, gentlemen, thank you. If you, um, do either of you have any final thing you'd like to say, anything you missed, any important point, anything before we wrap that you'd like to, to part with, or are you good? Dave? Man, um, I, I don't know. I think, uh, I think I'd probably part with what's possible is changing every day, you know? So, so Mm. Limits are always always changing. What's possible is changing every day. That sounds like a good billboard. I like that. What about you, Dermot? <laughs> I'm not going to even attempt to top that. I'm just going to say thanks, John, for, for this interview. We, I, you know, I think I speak for both Dave and I and Alfonso as well, that we really enjoy your, your podcast. And this has been a really terrific conversation. It certainly has um, been edifying to me and I hope to our audience as well. So, um, thank you for listening. Again, uh, Dave Dunham, Director of Business Development, Dermot Kelleher, Director of Engineering with Centec Architectural Systems. You can find them on the web. You can find them on LinkedIn. Centec, that is. You can find both of these gentlemen on LinkedIn for sure um, or by, by contacting Centec. That'll all be in the show notes as usual, as will the summary of this uh, conversation. So once again, you have killed another hour of your life listening to the Creating Structure podcast. Thank you for that. I hope it was beneficial. We really appreciate all of you out there in the audience. We are wrapping up now, signing off. Have a great day. We will catch you next time.